Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and Allie's not here with me tonight. I recently had a chance to talk to a woman I have admired from afar for some time now as I followed her daughter's case. And I want to start this episode by thanking Leah Parsons for sitting down to talk with me about her daughter, Retea. The story of Retea Parsons begins for many people with a post that went viral. The post was made in April of 2013, just after Retea died following a suicide attempt. Her mother, Leah Parsons, started a memorial page to honor the life of Retea, and the first post let the world know that Retea had been sexually assaulted a year and a half previously, a photo of the assault had been passed around, and she was bullied to the point that her world fell apart around her. But others heard the story when in May of 2014, a new hashtag started showing up on social media. It was hashtag Retea Parsons is her name. So I I came up with that because I was so frustrated when all of a sudden the media, uh, the judge put a publication ban on her name because she was a minor, even though her name had already been in the news headlines, I think probably almost a year at that point. And it was her name and her story had been in the media all along. And then the judge put a publication ban on the name saying that we couldn't use the name any longer. And I was so angry and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're trying to silence her again. And she's not even here. So I just started, you know, Retea Parsons is her name. I wasn't going to allow it to be silenced. And then everyone kind of picked up on it and it just went. Regardless of when the rest of the world learned Retea's name for the family, the story started on December 9th, 1995, when Retea Parsons was born in Nova Scotia, Canada, to Glenn Canning and Leah Parsons. Leah had come up with the name Retea long before she had her daughter, and Retea loved having an unusual and unique name. In 2011, Retea was smart, happy, and focused on high school. This is Leah again. Retea was a very cautious child, actually, very cautious. She always went into everything, uh, looking at all the scenarios around her, analyzing things. She was quiet until you get to know her, and then she was pretty silly. She loved art and science and reading. She was a huge reader. She'd read anything she could get her hands on. Huge love of animals. I think it was grade nine. She went to Dalhousie University to speak to one of the professors to see what she would need to do to become a marine biologist. And he was very impressed afterwards that she knew all the questions to ask because she did all the research ahead of time. Retea finished junior high school, a straight-A student, and her school fed into the larger Coal Harbor High School in Coal Harbor, Nova Scotia, a suburb of Dartmouth. During those early months, Retea made new friends, and one of these new friends invited her over for a sleepover. Retea asked her mother, and Leah agreed. While at her friend's house, she and her friend decided to go to the house of two boys who Retea didn't really know well. She knew them only well enough to recognize them from school, but they had grown up in the neighborhood with Retea's friend. 
At some point, two more boys came by the house. There were six kids total: four boys and two girls. And at some point, they started drinking vodka. So I like to talk about, especially when I present the kids, how cautious Rattaya was, even in her junior high school years, because they always question, kind of like, well, if she was so cautious, why was she drinking? And I'm like, well, she first of all, she's a teenager. She made a mistake. And she trusted the peer group she was with. She's just trying to find her way, just like any other kid experimenting with things. So obviously, if she felt unsafe in that environment, she wouldn't have she wouldn't have been there. So she obviously felt safe with that peer group that that evening. Before we get further into Rita's story of what happened that night, what happened after, and the ongoing story that Leah has to share with us. We need to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Our sponsors are quite literally the reason we've been able to afford the time to provide two episodes a week. Supporting our sponsors helps support us. You're going to spend a third of your life in your sheets. They make a difference with how you sleep, so you can start getting better sleep with better sheets. Brooklyn.com has the highest quality sheets without the big markup. It's warming up here in Kansas City. I cannot wait for summer, and I cannot wait to change out my sheets into my new linen Brooklyn and sheets. They sleep nice and cool for the summer. But those of you hanging out with Allie, you're on the opposite end. Things are starting to cool down there. But Brooklyn and has you there too. They have these fantastic twill sheet sets. Perfect for those cooler nights of winter. Their philosophy is beautiful home essentials without the crazy prices. This is luxury bedding underpriced, and you have to try these sheets today. I love my Brooklinen sheets. Brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for our listeners. Get twenty dollars off and free shipping when you use promo code Site at Brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident that they offer a risk-free sixty-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. The only way to get twenty dollars off and free shipping is to use promo code Site at Brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code Site. Brooklinen. These are the best sheets ever. At one point during the night, Rattea's friend left the house, leaving Rattea alone with the boys. The friend says that she tried to get Rattea to leave with her, but Rattea did not remember this happening. By this point in the night, she was very intoxicated. Rattea didn't remember a lot about what happened that night, but she did remember two of the boys on top of her. And then waking up in a different room in the basement with two other boys in the bed with her, the other boys were dressed. When she got home, she didn't tell her mother immediately about what had happened. So it happened on a Saturday night. She didn't tell me until Friday. The photo showed up Thursday at school, and then she had a breakdown on Friday. I think she's trying to put the pieces together of what happened that night. The photo Leah is referring to was taken by one of the boys. Leah was called home by her sister, who said Rattea was very upset about something that had happened, and Leah had to come home right away. 
When Leah arrived home, Ratea was on the kitchen floor, rocking and telling her mother her life was over and disclosing the details that she could remember from that night. And Leah had to stand in that kitchen, and all she could do in that moment was listen. Ratea could vaguely remember the digital shutter click of a cell phone at some point that night, but she didn't find out until Thursday at school that a photograph was taken by one of the boys and it was being texted and forwarded throughout the school. The photo was of one of the boys engaged in a sexual act with Ratea as Ratea was leaning out an open window throwing up. Ratea was nude from the waist down and the boy in the picture was flashing a thumbs up to the camera. The next day, Leah and Ratea went to the police to report the rape. Ratea made a two-hour statement to the officer, a statement that was not tape-recorded. Later, they were told she gave the statement to the wrong person. Being a minor reporting a sexual assault, there were certain protocols on who can take a statement and how the interview should be conducted. So Ratea had to go and give another statement, a more detailed statement, this time with a social worker and an officer trained in taking these types of statements. Because this situation and the interview method was designed to get the most information, Ratea disclosed details that she hadn't in that previous statement. She also had more time to piece together what she did remember, things like saying no, trying to push the boy away but being unable to because she was also throwing up at the time, and also trying to pull her pants up as he was trying to pull them down. Her parents said investigators took these differences in statements as though her information was unreliable. Because the boys took and distributed pictures of Ratea undressed and Ratea was only 15 years old, the investigation was not only into the sexual assault allegation, but also into charges of the production and distribution of child pornography. This investigation would last a little more than a year. The family also went to the school. Administrators said they were unaware the photograph existed and unaware it was being distributed until the police started investigating. This would mean that not one student in that school went to a faculty member to let them know this was occurring. The school then said in a statement to the media that they did not want to jeopardize the police investigation by interfering. Yet according to an independent review of the investigation, the assigned investigator from the Sexual Assault Investigation Unit attempted to interview many students about the photograph, but the school thwarted her attempts. Only one of the boys at the house that night submitted to an interview, according to the report, but their cell phones were never seized. Only their phone records, and those were obtained through a production order to their cell phone carriers. Leah says the school did nothing to protect Ratea or even attempt to contain the distribution of the photograph. A photograph of an alleged sexual assault was being texted from student to student to student, yet there were no consequences for having or for sharing this photo, so it continued. And more than just passing around the photograph, 
Rattea was being targeted for harassment. We use the word bullying a lot these days to describe behaviors from picking on someone all the way up to criminal harassment. What happened to Rattea on the spectrum we have given to the concept of bullying would be much closer to criminal harassment than to simply being picked on. She was targeted and pursued. She was called a slut and a whore. She was sexually harassed by boys who would use the picture and this narrative of her being a slut to justify their behaviors. Girls would threaten to fight her. The bullying was coming from several sources. So it was happening in real life, too, when she went out into her community or tried to go to new schools. But and a lot of it was happening on Facebook and through texting and through um, Twitter. There was no break and no reprieve from this where Ritea could ground herself again. It was relentless. And in the immediate aftermath, when she became a social pariah, her friends from before the incident all but disappeared. Her support system, aside from her close-knit family, evaporated. Rite was pulled out of Cole Harbor High School immediately. She went to live with her father in Halifax for a period, but starting over wasn't going to be easy. She went to four different schools, and we'd take her to the school and just watch her, you know, be really brave trying to start again, get up, and going into a school where she didn't know anybody. And then within a couple of weeks, we get the phone call. She's usually in the bathroom, come and get me, the photo, the photo arrived. So she's in full panic, full panic attack, and we'd have to take her out again. After a year-long investigation, investigators closed the case without bringing charges. The boys maintain that any act that happened that night was consensual and that Rotea was not too intoxicated to consent. The case was determined to be he said, she said. As to why they didn't pursue the child pornography charges, the police were advised by the Crown Prosecutor that charges should not be brought. First, without proving it was a sexual assault, the boys could claim a defense of personal use. Because all of the parties involved were minors, they could say the photo was taken of a consensual act for personal use. This doesn't entirely make sense, since they clearly didn't keep this to personal use. At least one of the boys texted it to multiple people. The other reason given was that you cannot tell the ages of the people in the photograph, so those who kept passing it around, who would have also been guilty of possessing child pornography, they could say that they didn't know those involved were underage. This is a misunderstanding of the law. Because authorities knew the age of the people in the picture, it didn't matter if they could not visually confirm their age. Those who had the picture knew it was of Rotea, and they knew she was underage. It was still child pornography. That year of investigation was not a time that Rotea or her family just sat waiting. Rotea became increasingly depressed, and her parents tried to get her help. Perhaps one of the frustrating things about this is that her parents did everything they could. My background's in counseling. I have a master's degree in counseling. I'll be able to get her to help. Uh, you know, I'm going to reach out to people I know to see 
how to get this moving and we're just going to take all the right steps and then we're just going to move forward in this and it's going to be okay. So I kind of went into, you know, uh, survivor mode and how do we help and realizing pretty quickly that nobody's going to help us. Like the police aren't taking it serious. They're not, you know, they're not really doing their job according to what I was seeing mental health system made her feel worse than when she went into the hospital and the school did absolutely nothing. So it was really uh, traumatizing on, on everyone who loved Rotea too, like her family trying to get her to help and just seeing her struggling and not being able to help was really, uh, it really hard on us. Afraid she would harm herself, Rotea checked herself into an inpatient facility where she alleged two male staff members stripped her of her clothes, possibly in a strip search. The hospital denied this, though two witnesses speaking to CBC News said they heard Rotea yelling for her clothes back. As a victim of sexual assault, an incident like this would be further traumatizing. When she was released from the hospital five weeks later, she was still suicidal. She was then placed in an outpatient drug treatment group, as that was the therapy available, though she was placed in a group with a boy from her original high school who had seen the photograph. In spring of 2013, the investigation had already been closed, and Rotea seemed to be making progress. She had stopped smoking marijuana, something she had started to self-medicate her anxiety stemming from the assault and the bullying. She was working with a new therapist who was a good fit for her and her specific needs. And she had been looking for work, a sign that some of her old energy and spark was coming back. She had close friends, including one friend who was living with the family, and she had a boyfriend. But in early April, she was experiencing increasing mood swings and a resurgence of anger. This is not at all uncommon for anyone recovering from any type of trauma. On April 4th, 2013, Rita got off the phone with her boyfriend and told her friend something to the effect of, this is it, I'm going to go kill myself. She then locked herself in the bathroom. Her friend talked her through the door and got Leah for help. Leah had to break into the bathroom. She came through the bathroom door and she found Rotea. She had hanged herself on the bathroom door. She was cut down and she was resuscitated and taken to the hospital on life support. But she had gone too long without oxygen. On April 7, 2013, Rotea Parsons was taken off life support and passed away with her family around her. Leah's post about the loss of her daughter, a victim of assault and bullying, reached millions of social media users, including the group Anonymous. Anonymous is a network of hackers who are loosely affiliated with one another. They launch cyber attacks on websites, often in an attempt to avenge a wrong that they see. Members of the group were able to find out the identities of all four boys at the house that night and threatened to post their names if the case was not reopened. When the case was reopened a week following Rotea's death, Rotea's father credited Anonymous with pushing authorities into doing it. The police say that they opened it when they received new information. 
Another person who took notice was one of the boys involved with the photograph. He wanted to explain to Leah what happened. The information he provided to Leah in the form of a Facebook message was a defense of his actions and his assurances that the sex was consensual, but turns out what he did was he essentially gave a confession. He described Retea as so intoxicated that she was throwing up that she wasn't able to entirely move on her own power and they were helping her walk. According to Canadian law, Retea would have been too intoxicated to give consent. Here's Leah again. Well, with regards to Retea and rape culture, like I taught Retea going into junior high because of my own rape at, at 14 years old. I felt that I, she was armed with everything she needed to know to make good choices and make good decisions and to be safe. And if she's outnumbered, to leave the situation. And all of those things I thought keep Retea safe. She was never really safe because nobody taught those four males that she ended up being in the room with the same message. I think it's really important to really teach our youth, and it has to start in schools because not every parent's going to teach their youth what is consent. With the case reopened, authorities called in the Internet Child Exploitation Unit. The two boys involved in the photograph were charged in August of 2013. The one taking the photograph was charged with production and distribution of child pornography, and the one in the photograph was charged with distribution of pornography. Neither were charged with sexual assault. With charges laid and Retea gone, the bullying continued. Yes, after Retea's suicide, the bullying turned toward her parents. There were the basic online comments about how Retea wasn't the angel they made her out to be, and if they were better parents, Retea would still be alive. But it went much further than that. A Facebook page appeared that mocked Retea's death, made tasteless jokes about her suicide, and included disturbing photographs of corpses and photoshopped pictures of Retea looking like a zombie. It is believed that the person who created the page is related to the young man in the photo. Then Retea's father, Glenn, received a death threat in August of 2013 in a YouTube comment that ended in an arrest when the IP address was traced back by authorities to the home of the boy in the photograph. Charges were dropped essentially because they couldn't prove who used the computer, just that the threat originated in the home. Additional inappropriate comments were traced back to a Defense Department computer, and the young man's father was arrested and questioned in connection to those. The names of all those involved with this, including the young man's father, have remained confidential because they would reveal the identity of the boy involved. Because they were minors at the time of the crime, they cannot be named in the media. Retea is exempt from the publication ban only because her family actively fought it. In September 2014, the young man who took the photo pleaded guilty to production of child pornography and was given a one-year conditional discharge, meaning if he stayed out of trouble, he would not be sentenced to a penalty. He did have to submit his DNA to the National Database, 
write a letter of apology to Retea's parents, and then have no further contact with them. The young man in the photo who had forwarded the photograph along pleaded guilty to one count of distributing child pornography in November of 2014. He went on to be sentenced to a year of probation. His conditions also included submitting the DNA sample, but also seeking counseling and abstaining from alcohol. He was told he could no longer have any contact with Retea's family. The sentences were so light for what is generally considered a heavy charge because they were also minors at the time the photograph was taken and distributed, and they were being sentenced as juveniles. The shame and stigma of being a victim of sexual assault keeps many women silent. In talking to Leah, I wondered if the Me Too movement may have helped Retea in her own process. The Me Too movement on social media is opening up the dialogue about sexual assault, and survivors are either sharing their stories or simply sharing the hashtag MeToo to show they are there, silent no more. Here's Leah. Retea was already very vocal about it, and she actually wanted to go on the talk radio to, to talk about what happened to her. We didn't because the investigation was still ongoing at the time, so I spoke to the, the radio personality and said, you know what? not a good time just because it's an ongoing investigation. But Retea wasn't silent about what happened to her. She wanted justice and she wanted to be validated and she wanted to hold those males accountable. So I don't think the Me Too necessarily movement would have really helped her. But Leah knows what would have helped Retea. You know, the police taking these things serious would have helped her. Getting that photo contained immediately would have helped her. Those are the things, the immediate things that I think would have helped her. And then, of course, getting the, I think after the photo was contained and something was done, like there was a consequence, I think the peer targeting would have backed off. Leah Parsons and Glenn Canning have become Retea's voice and Retea's legacy. They both present to schools, organizations, and even law enforcement on topics such as sexual assault, consent, mental health, and bullying. And they don't just talk, they've encouraged actual change. And I really do believe I wouldn't be out there speaking and uh, wasting kind of my emotional uh, energy and putting everything into this to speak to youth if I didn't feel that they were the ones that could make a difference around rape culture and protecting your friends and not leaving your friend behind and speaking up about when males are objectifying women. Speak up and say, look, I'm not going to be a part of this conversation. The bystanders have to kind of step in and say, this isn't okay. Getting the males on board, it's not a, it's not a female-male like division here. We're humans. We all have uh, a stake in this. Like We all have you know, family, and males get raped too. Um, so just make, getting males to come into this conversation and not be intimidated by it is so important. Young people that grow up that think that, you know, it's the girl's fault that she's drinking and look what she was wearing and, oh, she's a part, and just automatically believe a boy's version of something. They grow up to be judges and men in power too who still have those beliefs in the police system and every system. So, yeah, we have to get the youth before any of that happens because rape culture is right across 
you know, all societies and all walks of life. When I get males come up to me afterwards, when I do a presentation, females always come up and share their story because there's so many females that have been sexually assaulted. But when the, and the males come up and say, oh my gosh, like I totally get it now. Like I'm, I, I, like my eyes are wide open now. I understand. I didn't, I didn't really get it. Like I was pressuring my girlfriend and when she really didn't want to, I just pressured her a little more. So they're, they're actually, when they get it, it makes my, me feel like what I'm doing is worthwhile. There was um, a school in Ontario that Glenn went to with his dad and did a presentation. And afterwards, a group of young males decided to form a, almost like a club called Man Up. And what they do is they make people, make the males in their school accountable. So when they're making comments to females when they walk down the hallway, they actually hold them accountable. So that's just not okay in their school. And now there's 18 um, Man Up programs in 18 different high schools in, in Ontario and changing the dialogues and changing the, that type of culture in their school. I think that's pretty impressive. My big question for Leah, beyond hearing more about who Ritea was and about Leah's work since Ritea's death, is a question I think many of us wonder about in the wake of the loss of a child. How do you even get out of bed the next day, let alone heal? And that is how you start. You can't even get out of bed. And then, you know, physical ailments take over your body. <laughs> um, so there's so many layers that happen to you physically and emotionally. You know, and I was suicidal for months after Ritea died. And I just didn't want to do it. I wanted to quit. And I didn't think I could ever be a parent again to my other two girls because I just didn't think I could do it anymore. So coming through all of that was just really having to connect again to my spiritual self, connecting to finding yoga, being able to know that there's a safe place inside of me that I could find anytime. So lots of meditation, lots of grounding. But really, I had to make a promise to myself once I decided I was going to live that I needed to show myself the kind of kindness that was so loving that I was going to have to just every day and every moment kind of peel back those layers and really love myself and find new ways of loving myself through kindness and keeping an open heart because I could have went either way really quick. I could have went really bitter and anger or keep an open heart and choose to love and be her legacy and honor her life. So I chose that. And it's not easy because every day is um, painful. So when I wake up, what I feel is intense pain in my chest, in my head, because I realize every day that this isn't a dream, it's real. And then you have to find ways to move through your day from that place. But it's really important to honor the pain and the triumph. So I don't try to push those emotions away. I just make room for them. And then go about my day in a, in a loving kind of way after I do all my grounding meditation and all that stuff. So yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole process that I had to find. I had to find that way.